0: This is another iRaw podcast.
1: Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast of climate ecology and animal justice. Today, my guest is Tom Van Doren. He's a field philosopher at the University of Sydney and the University of Oslo. Uh, He's the author of several books and what's known as extinction studies. Um, You know, the ethics, the cultural effects, the the science of extinction. Um, Most recently, it just came out this month. A World in a Shell, Snail Stories for a Time of Extinction. Um, In in this book, he wants us to really get to know snails, um, how they're entangled with the lives of the other creatures and and the humans who who live in Hawaii. He's talking about uh, the snails of Hawaii specifically. And also, you know, think of each of the hundreds of species of snail as a you know, has a unique way of going through the world, is is a unique form of life, a way of unique way of experiencing. Um and yeah, you know, you might be thinking, gosh, do I really want to listen to an analog podcast about snails? Um <laughs> Selfishly, I think the answer is yes. Um, but I would say my experience reading the book was I came in thinking, oh, you know, Van Doren's previous book was about birds, and I'm kind of more into birds than I am into snails, like, how how excited am I going to be about reading this book about snails? But I ended up loving it, I ended up loving snails, um, and I hope this podcast can start to convince you why, and if you decide to pick up the book, that will go even farther down that road, um, the road to loving snails. So yeah um some housekeeping notes uh next week is our book club uh discussing white skin black fuel on the dangers of fossil F- fascism by andreas Malm and the zetkin collective and then uh toward the end of november on uh, november 29th we will be discussing salvage the bones by jesmyn ward um, so if you're interested in either of those you can learn more about the book club at daytonmartindale.com book-club um, there's some links in the episode description uh and yeah if you enjoy this episode please send it to a friend you think might like it post it on social media you know like rate subscribe to this podcast um and if you really like it please consider uh, donating on patreon patreon.com slash storytelling pod a small monthly donation to help keep this podcast going thanks so much and on to tom van Doren and the snails With Tom Van Doren, the author of A World in a Shell Snail Stories for a Time of Extinction. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: Thanks very much for having me. It's great to speak with you.
1: Yeah, so um, you know, this book is about extinctions. You've, you've written some previous books on extinctions. Um, what's, what first sparked your interest in writing and researching that topic?
0: Yeah, well, that that was quite a while ago now. I mean, um, so I've I've been working on extinction for over a decade, I guess, uh, and I, I came to it in a sort of a roundabout way. I I did my my PhD on on agricultural plants and and farmers' relationships with with plant varieties, and through that work, I guess I got very interested in in the loss of agricultural crop varieties and the efforts to conserve them over the last few decades, in particular. Um efforts to bank them uh, or to keep them moving in communities and so on um and that really led me into thinking about biodiversity loss more generally so uh, i've I've done that now in in a couple of books um and focused on birds uh when i I first turned to thinking about biodiversity loss more generally beyond the, the agricultural world. Um, the first book out of that was was Flightways, and I thought originally that, that book would be about um, would have chapters on some plants, some animals, all sorts of different um, different creatures. But I sort of fell into writing and thinking about birds, you know, and sort of stuck with it, and the book became a book all about birds. Uh, and then I guess the the last chapter in that book was about the Hawaiian crow, which in a way sort of segued into the next book which was all about crows around the world including the Hawaiian crow so I've sort of um I sort of move move around in terms of case studies um with with the the kinds of creatures that capture my attention where I think there are really interesting and important stories but but keep come I keep coming back to this uh focus on extinction um and that's really I guess because it, it fascinates me and I think it's one of the the real key challenges of our time is to to understand what extinction means and why it matters and then hopefully to to do something about it and and i guess as a philosopher and a and a writer i my avenue into doing something about it is to try and tell powerful extinction stories that that change the way we think and feel about the world
1: Mm -hmm. um and so yeah you mentioned kind of your previous two books focused on birds which Maybe were more traditionally charismatic and, and arguably kind of easier ways into getting people to care about extinctions than, at least on the surface, snails would be. So how did you end up going from birds to snails?
0: Um, yeah, well, that, that was another one of those kinds of uh, accidental um, developments. I was in Hawaii working on the birds. I've been working in Hawaii for about 10 years now. And I, um, I, I got a, friend of a, a friend introduced me to, to one of their friends, Mike Hadfield, who I talk about in the book. Um, and Mike was, was basically running this makeshift snail arc at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Uh, and for several decades, he'd been looking after snails, even though he's not a snail biologist, it's not really his area, but he sort of, again, fell into it because no one else was taking care of these snails that were disappearing. Um, so I started yeah, talking to Mike, but more, more as a friend than an informant. And he introduced me to the snail community. And I guess I I slowly fell in love with snails. They're not creatures who I knew much of anything about, really, um, before I started the work. and But at the same time, I also got to, to know the snail community in Hawaii and was really drawn into their passion for these creatures. And And a big part of that, I guess, is, as you just pointed out, that they're not so charismatic, although Hawaii snails are, many of them at least, particularly beautiful. Um, so I encourage people to to, go, to Google for some Hawaiian tree snails to, to see their beautiful shells and so on. But um, they're still not that charismatic, and the, the job of getting getting people to care for them is is quite difficult. Um, and so I guess I slowly began to see the snail story in Hawaii as one uh, example of a much bigger, more pervasive problem um, around the loss of invertebrates and the loss of, of uncharismatic species and the need to find ways to tell stories, to to raise interest and curiosity and concern about the, the 99% of the animal kingdom that is the invertebrate world that is also disappearing, that I had sort of been um, not ignoring but it hadn't been a, a, a part really of my work up until then.
1: Yeah, so we're definitely going to talk more about snails um, shortly, but just kind of from a uh, the standpoint of, of writing this book, you you said you're a writer and philosopher. You in the book you you call yourself a field philosopher, um, but it's it's an interesting book because it's you know part philosophy, part really like science journalism, and part history, and uh, it's you know various forms of storytelling worked in. So so what. Uh, you know, what do you see as your, your task as a field philosopher and how did you approach this book?
0: Yeah, thank you. That's, I'm glad it's an interesting book for all of those um, different uh, voices and approaches woven in that. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I had hoped for. And it, I am really – I set about, in writing this book, trying to do something a little bit different in terms of genre. Um, I wanted to write it as a, as a trade book, as a book that was broadly accessible to, to anyone who's interested um, and, but at the same time, I didn't want to write it as a conventional sort of piece of science journalism. I wanted to hold on to those philosophical questions that animate my interest in in snails and in extinction, um, but to take them to to a broader audience. And I guess I've tried to do that in a way in my previous books too. Um, but in this case, I guess the, the philosophical questions. Uh, in a way, even more submerged in the narrative. They're not; they're definitely not gone, um, but they're not you know, accompanied by a whole lot of footnotes and, and citations or, or dense philosophical uh, discussion. They're, they're sort of there in the storytelling. And that's something I've been working on, uh, as I said, in previous books, but it's a little bit more submerged still in, in the snail book. And so it's an, it's an effort to tell this story, tell this history, um, of the disappearance of Hawaii snails, but, but even earlier than that of how all of these snails got to Hawaii, um, and, and to cultivate in the reader a kind a sense of appreciation, curiosity, and concern. Um, but at the same time to, to raise these kinds of questions about how we know the world, our place in the world, or places, uh, our obligations to, to one another, um, and how this how to think through and respond to all of this in a time of extinctions. Um, so I guess there's, yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, and I think that effort to be broadly accessible is, is a big part of what I take field philosophy to be about. I think there are many people doing different things with that term, but for me, part of it is about just doing philosophy in a way that is broadly accessible. Um, but it's much more than that. And I, so I've, since my, uh, PhD research incorporated interviews into my philosophical work and thinking. I've gone out and talked to people and, and incorporate other kinds of ethnographic methods. And that's really about doing philosophy in the world with others. It's about taking your questions to others. It's about being interested in others and what they have other people, whether they're scientists or hunters or indigenous peoples, what, what they have to offer as sort of really meaningful uh, philosophical interventions and trying to think with them. And that's something that, of course, anthropologists and others have always done, uh, but mm-hmm. or done for a very long time at least, but philosophers not so much. Um, so that's part of it. And so taking our questions out into the world um, a- and in doing that, I guess, that, that there is a, definitely an ethical charge to that effort to think with others. As Isabel Stenger's, Puts it. I think um, she talks about um, taking up our questions in the presence of presence of those for whom they matter most. So I think we we learn to think differently with others. We learn to ask different kinds of questions to be to be moved and um, provoked uh, by the world differently when we when we take our philosophy out of the armchair or the office. I guess so. There's a lot more I guess that flows from that. But um, what I'm trying to do in this book is. Is to, to take up some of those methods and to tell these stories in that kind of an accessible way that um, that that holds these philosophical questions at its core, but but does that in a really you know, accessible way.
1: Yeah. So so kind of building off that, I you know I I consider myself an animal lover, an animal advocate. I have a podcast that's largely about animals. I write about animals, but I I don't think I had you know strong feelings about snails in particular, one way or another. I mean, I, you know, I liked them insofar as I like animals, but um, until I read your book and then by the end of chapter one, I was a total snail partisan. Um, And now I think they're super cool and we need to save them all. Uh, So just kind of, especially from that first chapter about slime, what were some of the most remarkable facts about snails that you learned in um, your research for this book that really stood out to you
0: yeah well the, this the the first chapter as you say is all about slime and and slime really was um, well it wasn't my entryway into thinking about snails that that came actually through biogeography which i think is another fascinating part of the snail story but um, very early on i got fascinated by slime and I, and I guess because it is such a derided substance and i think it's one of the main reasons many people have have a problem with snails um it's a key part of the kind of ickiness that um that puts people off Uh, so i really wanted to dive right into the slime and, and think about what its its evolutionary function is and what it does in the world and to try and find a way to appreciate the snails through it so that was that was one part of it but the other was um the moving beyond the shells i guess of snails especially with the hawaii snails that have many of them at least have such beautiful colorful shells um it's kind of easy to think those are beautiful uh but to ignore the the fleshy slimy bit um but what happens when we do that i think is you know we we very easily segue into collecting snail shells uh, which is not in my view a very good way of coming to appreciate snails um and what we get to, what we gloss over really quickly, is is these living beings that actually uh, inhabit a world, per- sense and perceive a world, um, move through the world, um, and actually are up to all sorts of really fascinating things. So that first chapter is really an effort to do exactly what it sounds like it did for you, which is wonderful to hear, um, to really get people to appreciate that snails are. Um, are these beings that inhabit their own kind of miniature, fascinating worlds. Uh, and so through the slime, we, we uh, look at some of the work on snail cognition and behavior that's going on around the world, um, l- looking at how snails navigate, how they, they um, are able to read the slime trails of others to pick up all sorts of interesting information about other snails and to um, so how this the slime contributes to uh, a, a thick social uh, and spatial sense of the world, um, and so we also consider some of the the work on snail chemoreception and how snails um, smell, taste the world around them, how their their um, perceptual apparatus work uh, differently to to most humans with our our vision centered focus on the world. Um, so they're inhabiting yeah very different umwelten in the, in um, von school's terms, uh, and yet that they are these sort of fascinating Worlds that that include, and this was a bit of a shock to me too, but that include the fact that snails are um, are social creatures in some sort of way. They they deliberately hang out together when they're estivating, sealed up in their shells, that they experience o- overcrowding, uh, but also social isolation in ways that are uh, that impact on their ability to form memory, on their their metabolic. Functioning like their development, their ability to develop and grow their shells, so they are tuned into a social world in a way that is, I'm sure, vastly different to the way that most humans are tuned into a social world. And yet, there is there is something called snail sociality, Um, and and I think just beginning to have a a sense of those things, even though um, we can't understand them and inhabit them in any full sense. But we can begin to to uh, have some sort of a sense uh, of the thickness of snail worlds that it exceeds the kind of ick factor, um, and I think that is a pathway into a, a different kind of appreciation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you. There's a lot I want to jump off from that answer, but you mentioned uh, you know people like collecting shells, and you have kind of this wild history of how. White people arriving in Hawaii went pretty out of control collecting snail shells, Um, but that is not necessarily the, or far from the only threat that um, snails faced in Hawaii and still are facing. So what are uh, right now some of the major threats facing Hawaii's snails?
0: Yeah, well, well, right now the so I should say Hawaii has over or had over 750 species of of land snails, um, and uh, which makes it well, one of the most diverse assemblages of snails anywhere on the planet, which is itself really fascinating. Um, so to compare it to to North America, um, a landmass that's 1700 times the size of the Hawaiian Islands um the number of snails in Hawaii is about two-thirds the number found in the whole of North America. So it's it's wow. a place that is, you know, abundant in snails and, and they weren't just diverse, they they were um abundant in number. And so there are lots of descriptions from these early naturalists of snail you know, s- snails hanging from the trees like bunches of grapes. Um, that they were really abundant. Uh, and these tree snails, of course, do, well, not of course it's probably is not that well known that the tree snails didn't eat vegetation like uh, you know eat the plant leaves themselves, instead, they scrape um, a layer of microorganisms off the surface of the leaves, so they 're basically cleaning the leaves as they as they move through the trees, so they weren't harming the forests um, we don 't really know what they were doing in the forests there are different theories of what about what their ecological role might have been. Um, but so those, these abundant snails were, were up in the trees, cleaning them. And they were also down in the soils, recycling dead leaf matter, um, which was really important in Hawaii before the arrival of earthworms, uh, um, relatively recently, the snails did a lot of the work of making the soil on these volcanic islands. So yeah, they're, they're fascinating, um, Diverse creatures uh, in Hawaii. Uh, There were, as I said, at least 750 species, probably many more that haven't been described. Um, And they today, there are uh, almost um, two thirds of them are gone, Uh, and the ones that remain are disappearing for a range of reasons. But the biggest contemporary cause is Uh, predation. So especially another snail, the rosy wolf snail, the Euglandina rosea, that's been uh, brought into the islands uh, deliberately to try and control another snail that was brought into the islands, the giant African snail, which some people felt was a pest. Um, So this predatory snail was brought in to try and um, consume these these giant African snails it it didn't instead it ate the, the native species and what I um, sorry what
1: I want to bring out there that one of the I don't know most infuriating parts of the book is that when they brought in this wolf snail no one like checked whether it would prey on the native snails or
0: yeah
1: you know have any negative impacts or even really, really seem to be thinking about it they just said oh well we caused this one problem with an introduced snail What if we introduce a different snail to solve it? And I don't know. It's just such frustrating thinking.
0: It is, yeah, and it's and yet it was surprisingly common um, uh, efforts for around efforts for biocontrol in the yeah in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and and still today in some cases, um, really not enough thought went into to this. And I and I think there's something really. In that, and uh, well, there's many things in it, but one of the things that's in it in this case is that people, the people making those decisions in Hawaii, um, the territory, it was a, at this stage Hawaii was a territory of the US, so it was the territorial government, um, just really, I think, didn't care uh, about the the local snails. Um, there, there was a there was a small community of people who who were studying them in in the middle of the 20th century, but. Um, but yeah, by and large, I guess if they weren't contributing to the economy or contributing in some other way, they they weren't um, really factored into this decision-making, uh, which, yeah, I guess goes to a particular kind of worldview, a particular way of, of valuing biodiversity or valuing plants and animals that I think, I hope, has transitioned into something else. But we still do get this kind of careless thinking. And uh, I very briefly in the book mention the enthusiasm that some people have for a a nematode that they're proposing, which is used in agricultural settings to kill snails and slugs. Um, And so there's now been a proposal that it might be introduced to Hawaii to control the rosy wolf snail. Um, again, no work done to see whether this nematode will will kill the native snails. Oh, yes. um, so, so none none of the scientists who are, who are who are passionate about Hawaii snails that I've spoken to have been in support of this nematode proposal. But but that it is even floated still without anyone actually doing any of that work is just pretty mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Um, but I sorry I um I digressed. I mentioned the the um, the predators as as a main cause of of extinction today the rosy wolf snail, but others including the rats and chameleons that have arrived in the islands also eat snails. Um, but then, as you say, I, I really in the in the book I really wanted to um, not just tell that story that that um, villain I what's my word here that um, turns into a villain um, the those introduced species, which I think is what we we very often do with with pred- predators of endangered species, especially where they're relatively recently arrived in a place, um, they become the villains and we sort of fail in a basic um, obligation of curiosity to, to tell more complex, uh, deeper historical stories about how we ended up where we did, which is... Mm-hmm. Uh, which in the case of Hawaii is is about shell collecting in some cases, decimating some species, but it's also about a much longer history of habitat destruction, which which happened uh, for all sorts of things, from agriculture to um, including sugar and pineapple plantations and ranching. Um, in Hawaii, the military um, control an awful lot of land, especially on Oahu, and and they continue to blow up and destroy snail habitat in different places. Um, so it's a it's a, a complex set of of factors that are involved historically and still you know impacting today in some ways. I think we have to hold all of that complexity together in in the book, uh, together in the stories we tell, and that's what I try to do in the book, um, in an effort to uh, to I guess move beyond this sense that we are inhabiting an, an anthropogenic extinction crisis in which you know, humanity is destroying. Um, plants and animals to, to really zero in on the particular forms of human life, the particular social and economic and and cultural uh, systems uh, that are driving this extinction crisis. And that's one of the, the key agendas of the book, is to complicate that story about an anthropogenic extinction crisis.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned that a lot of the people working in the mid-century who were especially, you know, agricultural interests who wanted the rosy wolf snail there to help control so-called pests didn't necessarily care about the native snails um i think a a maybe natural question is is why should we and there are a bunch of different angles um we could take you know we could care because we care about individual snails and their cognition in their world we could care because of you know some ecological role they have which although you mentioned that we aren't totally sure what exactly that is um but i'm I'm curious as you know there are if there are hundreds of snail species why why should we care about a snail species and i know there's a million answers and that's what the whole book is about but what are what if you someone asked you that on the street where would you start
0: yeah i I would be very bad at giving a a simple (laughs) answer on the street i think but i'll I'll do my best um well i can break it
1: down too if you mentioned the, the term umwelten earlier um mm. and the kind of which is sort of the experience perceptual world of that a given animal has or a given creature has and what uh you know thinking of species as a form of life what what is what does that mean
0: yeah um I mean that that's been a big part of my thinking since since flightways where I tried to think about the about species as forms of life moving through evolutionary time and and tried to make an argument there about the uh, importance of, of recognizing and holding on to those those ways of being in the world um, as emerge as emerging and evolving projects that we have an obligation to um, and I, I think I, I definitely am taking up that thread in this book too um, and Chapter 2 is sort of in conversation with Chapter 1 of Flightways, and Chapter 2 of the Snail book, and I, although I don't make that explicit, it's it was really my effort to to rethink the way I'd been thinking about flightways in the ways that I was forced, I guess, or prompted to by the snail situation. Um, I sh- can say more about that. I should say more about that, but, I'll, but I'm drifting away from your questions. So I guess the the um, argument for why we should care about snails in this in this book is as you say really multifaceted and um, I have always resisted this uh, dualism I guess between that that's often thrown around in environmental philosophy between intrinsic and instrumental value and that we ought to you know to come down firmly on one side of that divide and, and value uh, or have ethical obligations to other species on the basis of either intrinsic or instrumental um values uh, i really want to multiply values and and, and multiply and, the ways in which we sorry just to sort of appreciate yeah
1: break down those two terms intrinsic would be the snail has value regardless of whether humans can use them and instrumental would be they have value for their use to humans and other creatures Is That precisely, that's precisely. Right? thank
0: you mm-hmm. sorry I, I drift off into the, into jargon only very <laughs> like, occasionally and, oh, and not in the book very no, I, I, you um, don't use those terms in the book. Yeah, I don't think. I don't. No, this is a, this is sort of the trouble with with doing the kind of field philosophy we're talking about. I'm I'm having a lot of these conversations, but they're just in my head. I, I keep them out of the book, and so then, unfortunately, when when people start to ask me questions like this, I um I get to to make some of that thinking visible, um which which sometimes I you know is is submerged even from myself or things that I have you know. I spend a lot of time puzzling through these questions, but but it doesn't make it into the book, and so I very quickly forget the long process of thinking that brought me there. Um, so it's lovely to talk about the book, but I'll yeah. I know I'd love and, for you to make it. some
1: of that thinking visible too. You know.
0: Um, so so yeah, really, I I want to um, say that the snails matter in a whole range of of different ways, and and I. I definitely want to hold on to this sense that they have intrinsic value. They matter in and of themselves, irrespective of, you know, who else they might be good for. And that's really what's going on in chapter one that we've already talked about the, the argument about the life worlds, the umwelt of the snails and, uh, and coming to appreciate that these are you know, remarkable creatures who have a, a right in some sense, not that I like the rights discourse, but have a, you know, that we have an obligation to hold open space for in the world. Um, but then from chapter one onwards, the, the rest of the book is, is really trying to draw out different ways in which their disappearance matters. And so, yes, some of them are slowing down with these questions of the ecological roles that they might have. Um, chapter two really is, is trying to think about um, their value as part of a kind of evolutionary assemblage um, and what that might mean and how that might make demands on us. Um, the chapter on on the military uh, is really thinking about snails as allies in the in the struggle for livable worlds that, that that they might actually be uh, important allies in in helping us to fight against militarism and to hold open room for for um, cultural diversities as well as uh, the protection of environment so each of the chapters in a different way actually has a sort of uh, is trying to draw out a different mattering, if you like, a different um, hmm. a different thing that's lost or threatened by the disappearance of snails. And this is really grounded in what Debbie Ro- Debbie, Ro- Debbie Bird Rose, who I worked with a lot earlier in my career until she passed away, um, we, we once called the entangled significance of extinction. That um, was an effort to to flesh out all of these, or well, not all. We can't do that, but to flesh out the multiple ways in which um, extinction matters and ripples out into the world to impact on lives and landscapes, while also holding on to that core commitment to um, to the what we've been talking about as the intrinsic value of the species. So holding all of that together is, is, is what we meant by the entangled significance of extinction. And so this book is an effort to do that um, in a kind of slowed-down way, I guess, um, across multiple chapters.
1: Well, snails can relate to being slowed down, but... Yeah, you you talk about snails as not a member but a participant in the species, and and kind of a species as a a process or even a, a project of its members rather than a static thing. And yeah, maybe you know you mentioned that chapter is in conversation with Flightways. It it might be a lot to ask you to explain two different books in this podcast instead of just one. But how? Uh, how has your, your thinking on that? How did it change by confronting snails, or how did it develop? Um, and yeah, how did that conversation yeah. play out?
0: Yeah, well, in, yeah, back in in chapter one of Flightways was about uh, it was also in the Hawaiian Islands, actually, in the in the Kapuna Islands or the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, um, where the albatross live. Um, so yeah, that that chapter was thinking about um, about albatross species, the the Laysan and Black-footed albatross as these intergenerational projects that are holding themselves in the world, and it spent a bit of time thinking about albatross reproduction and the the work that goes into producing one generation, producing the next generation of of chicks, uh, and how that was all being threatened and in some cases lost to rising sea levels and, and plastics and other things that were um, that were really impacting on the species, but impacting on it in particular in that. At that junction, that intergenerational junction, where one generation tries to bring forth the next, uh, either by flooding nesting habitat, in low-lying nesting islands, uh, or by feeding plastic to chicks, which is, was was and still is often happening and, and causing the death of these chicks. So, I was really interested there in the in the intergeneration, the breakdown of that intergenerational process of transmission, um, and and what that means, and and what kinds of demands it makes on us. Uh, and in, in order to get to that, I was thinking through this concept of the flight way, of the species as a way of life that's stretched over evolutionary time, um, that is working to hold itself in the world in really literal ways with the albatross, um, and, and that those processes of intergenerational transmission are being threatened. Um not a, that doesn't all work so neatly with the snails. I think it. I think it does work in some way, but um, I think it probably works for all species, even though the the work that goes into holding, bringing the next generation forth, is not as you know, obvious um, as it is with the albatross for um, for many other species. But when I came to thinking about snails, uh, I was really struck by, well, firstly, the difficulty I had. Thinking about individual species that there are over 750 species that i was trying to reckon with and i had having a lot of trouble ho- holding some of those differences in my head and and the taxonomy is also often still being revised in some cases so we're dealing sort of straight away i think with an assemblage um of species and and this is the case for invertebrate conservation more generally it's it's often conservation done or in bulk uh, rather than thinking about single species like the Laysan albatross. Um, and so we need to start to think quite differently straight away, I think, about uh, what's going on here. And so with with the snails, I got very interested early on in their biogeography, how they all got to Hawaii. Um, and I started to think about rather than thinking of it as sort of a singular flight way through evolutionary time as I had been with the albatross, I started to think about it as a a network of multiple species um, that is spread out across the Pacific Ocean when we start to think about uh, how all these snails move to Hawaii and the other islands where the ancestral species of some of them are found. um, And And how after they arrived in Hawaii, they began to diversify. And that's a a story that's a a lot to do with the landscape of Hawaii and the ideal conditions that it provides for speciation. And so the scientists think that somewhere between 20 and 30 species of snails probably made it to Hawaii over the last 5 million years. And they probably made it on birds, that they traveled on birds to Hawaii. And then... Between the islands, they most likely moved around by a wind or storm. Some of them are blown around um, or they float around on logs to a nearby island. Um, and, and all of these really um, random processes of um, separation and isolation and drifting into new environments um, give rise to new species. And so from these 20 or 30 arrivals, uh, all of which would have been tiny little um snails. Uh we have this incredible speciation of 750 at least probably many more species of all sorts of shapes and colors and sizes. Um and so I was trying to hold on to that process as an evolutionary and biogeographical process and to think about uh it as a kind of as a a process of millions of years of unlikely movements of you know that have produced this uh, utterly unrepeatable um, assemblage of life and to just try to to give an account of that that, that makes some of that um, history visible and, and I think just by describing it and I've done that very poorly here I hope I do a better job of it in, in the book just by describing it I think we are drawn into a different kind of appreciation for exactly what was here how long it took to come into the world and how quickly it's now being sort of st- truncated and stamped out um so again it's an it's an effort to to think about what uh, demands might be made on us by this long evolutionary history um but it's a it, there isn't the sort of singular flight way that i guess preoccupied me in in flight ways. um there is this more complex assemblage of life that i think makes a very similar kind of set of demands but um but a lot of what i end up reflecting on in that chapter is is how this draws us into an encounter with mystery and unknowability and the fact that we you know that this is an assemblage of life stretched across oceans of space and time that we we just can't really understand um and yet we are uh, destroying it before we've even had a chance to understand in the in the limited kinds of ways that we might Mm -hmm.
1: um yeah and i guess another um another way in which these species matter is the way in which they interact with, you know, the, the humans of Hawaii in particular, the indigenous peoples there. Like how do snails feature in native Hawaiian stories?
0: Yeah. Well, they, um, they feature in a lot of ways. And this was of course, another one of the things I really wanted to capture in the book. And, um, I didn't, I didn't want to tell Kanaka Maoli's native Hawaiian stories, uh, snail stories i don't i didn't think that was my place i I'm, i mention um some of them and i try to give a sense of i guess the really key um significant or the key role that that snails play in in a lot of um kanaka stories is is as this uh voice that sings in the forest at night um and uh, not just at any old time but they they sing as a sign you often in in the arc of a story they sing at a time uh, to indicate that everything is pono again everything is is righteous correct and good it's sort of um been resolved as it should so they have this really important um role as as um symbols and and omens and and um yeah a musical presence sometimes called the voice of the forest um, so I spend a little bit of time in the book thinking about that and talking to um, Hawaiian cultural practitioners and um, and to and to scientists as well to to really all sorts of people about uh, about this singing in the forest um, and what it what it means uh, and and how to understand it um, and so that's a big a big part of I guess the the cultural significance of snails but um, more generally I guess I'm interested in what the disappearance of these culturally significant creatures means um, and how that fits within a, within a Hawaiian um, worldview where these creatures in the forest are uh, for, for many um, native Hawaiians, they're their they're, they're um, uh, embodiments of, of the uh, deities ancestors. Um, and so when they disappear from the forest, and this is not just the snails, it's the birds and the plants and others who are lost, there's uh, for some people, and I, I draw this out through an interview I did, especially with um, the kumu hula, the teacher of hula, uh, Cody Pueo Pata. Um, so um, Pueo was telling me uh, about the, the breakdown of um, of religious and cultural practices in in hula um, as these species disappear, as as these god forms. Um, disappear from the world that it's no longer possible to have the kinds of relationships with them that uh, are normally um, taken up through hula. And so that part of the religion, Pueyo t- told me, um, disappears. Uh, and so I guess I, that's, a, that's a theme that I've been interested in in other work and in, in, um, in other parts of the world too, uh, how the disappearance of species ripples out into the world to transform uh, people's lives to transform cultural practices, to to change um, the world, and remove a kind of a layer of meaning uh, and storied significance from the world. So I wanted to to draw all of that out in the book, but I didn't want the the discussion of um, Kanakamoli relations with snails to be limited to to those. Um, more traditional cultural relationships. And so I, I had an, I have another chapter in the book that I've already mentioned that's about, um, the US military. And that's really about this, this valley, uh, Makua Valley on, in on the Waianae coast of Oahu, um, where a, a group, a Kanaka group called Malama Makua, which means, Malama means to care. Um, so to care, caring for this valley, this group have opposed the US military's, um, use of this valley as a, uh, weapons dump and tests and live fire training site um, and they have um, in some ways used the snails as a kind of ally in those struggles against the military so that chap is really trying to think about the shifting cultural significance of snails and other plants and animals and and one of the contemporary forms of cultural significance that i think the snails are having in somewhere like makua valley is as as an ally for in struggles for uh the protection of the of land and culture and i think that's an important element of the of the snail story too in hawaii
1: yeah maybe uh you know we've we've been talking about a lot of things we are losing and things that are disappearing um but how you know, how is that alliance doing what are uh what are some of the efforts being made um to protect snails in Hawaii?
0: yeah well i mean there there are those efforts to conserve habitat and landscapes more generally like in um makua valley it's probably too late for makua valley really um there there's still some some trees around the the ridge lines and things but um the valley is pretty destroyed by a lot of you know, decades of fires and so on Um, But there are other efforts to conserve um, forest habitat in other parts uh, of the islands that are vitally important. Um, And and then I guess there's the really big picture question about uh, climate change and its um, impacts on moisture-dependent animals like snails um, and and what that will mean in the future. Um, So there's some of those sort of bigger picture um, landscape and atmospheric Uh, processes that are really going to matter that do matter for snails that um that there are some efforts to to try and address uh, but of course they're very big problems um so what i really focus in on in the book is those more um snail centered i guess conservation efforts which at this stage uh as the, the snails are disappearing so quickly um have really become about Banking, if you like, this the species in one way or another. So there's there's two key sites that I talk about in the book, and they each sort of get their own chapter. Um, one of them is the the forest exclosures, um, which are these fenced areas in the forest that have with these very specially designed fences uh, that have uh, that keep out their predators. So they're small patches of forest in which snails can be, uh, you know, basically rescued from the surrounding areas and put into these more secure spaces to live out their lives um and then in that's sort of discussed mostly in the first chapter of the book and then in the last chapter of the book we go to the the what's usually called the lab um but i call i think about it as an arc um in the book um which is a uh, basically a, a trailer um that is full of these environmental chambers that are like refrigerators basically where snails are kept uh, in an environment in small containers that replicate their, um, the moisture and temperature conditions that they would normally have experienced. Um, so these are the sort of the two sites in which most of Hawaii snails uh, go on living at the moment. Um, and and really for most species that, of the species that remain, their numbers are so diminished that uh, wherever they're found in the forest now, they're pulled out and um, Dave Cisco, who I talk about a lot in the book, is who's the head of the Snail Extinction Prevention Program. Um, he described this, this to me as an evacuation, and that's, I think, a very accurate term for what they're they're doing. They're basically pulling snails out wherever they can find them um, because of the threats of these predators that are that are now moving up into the the higher elevation, the very last refuges um, for some of the the, the native snail species. Um, so that's really the the form that most of the conservation energy is um, being directed in 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 Hawaii for snails at the moment. It's it's really about pulling them out of the forest and trying to get them established in these um, secure facilities. Um, so it's a bit of a yeah, it's a it's a really a, a sad situation in a way. And I spend a bit of time in the book reflecting on. Um, what that means and you know, where to from here, I guess, uh, given that we can hold on to some of these things in captivity or in sort of quasi-captivity of a, a fenced bit of the forest, but um, there really isn't a plan beyond that for a, a way to restore them, if you like, to get them back into the forest in, in any fuller sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you, uh, you. the last chapter is about hope in a time of loss and you know, the situation you describe doesn't immediately sound hopeful. Um, so what, you know, what do you mean by this kind of hope? What is there to hope for right now? Yeah,
0: well, that that last chapter is sort of a me, me trying to come to terms with the, the story I've been telling in the book um, and, and figure out what to make of it all. Um, and I, I guess it came about that way because I got drawn into the snails, into the snail community, as I described, and, and into to really caring about these these creatures and their future before I quite realised how bad it was. Um, and I was sort of writing this book and then trying to understand what comes next for these snails. Um, but then I guess the philosopher in me wanted to know what does responsible care look like in this kind of a situation? So... Um, yeah, if, if the snails can't be restored to the forest, and at this stage there isn't... Uh, nobody knows how how all of those predators, especially the rosy wolf snail, might ever be um, removed from the forest, what that would look like. And, of course, that would come with its own violence and killing of, of these introduced species. Um, but even if it could be done... Um, well, if it could be done, I think people would jump at it, by and large, and... Um, but but nobody knows how to do it. Uh and so until that can happen really all we can do is hold on to the snails and hope something changes. Um so part of me was was trying to understand uh what yeah what um whether this is the right thing to be doing. Um should we just keep um banking these species some of them have been some of these species have been living um, primarily or only in captivity for decades, um, how long does this go on for? Um, we don't really know what it means for a snail whether it you know they're, whether they're living flourishing lives. I think that's a, a difficult but important question to be asking. Um, and so that chapter is really trying to to grapple with a kind of hopelessness maybe about the restoration of this species, um, but also to describe the really intimate care. That goes on in this laboratory space that I've mentioned, um, where where people day in day out are are cleaning snail containers and and, you know washing snails under microscopes with pipettes to keep mites off them and um, and really trying to keep them alive, but for a very uncertain future. And I think that really is the situation that a lot of species are in today when we're honest about it. A lot of um, ex situ out of the environment, uh, out of their natural environment conservation, whether it's in a zoo or a captive breeding facility, um, a lot of those species will not get back into the world in a meaningful way. Um, With reintroduction programs for a lot of species, most species fail. And so I think, um, and and with the snails, you know, we, we... as I, in the when I was in the middle of writing the book in the beginning of 2019, um, apex fulva, one of these snail species that had been living only in the in the laboratory for uh, over a decade, uh, the last individual of that species died, and the species went extinct. So it was a very tangible example of of a species that you know that didn't make it back out into the world, uh, and there will be others for whatever reasons as time goes on. Um, so it's it's not a um it's not a hypothetical when it comes to some species but it, but and we just don't know how many of these species might ever get back out in the forest. So sorry that's a a very long um explanation for the or summary of the situation that I was trying to think through and I guess where I arrived at is is trying to still make a, an argument for hope in this context. Um, and hope and care and, and the kind of mournful hope, I call it, that I'm arguing for in this final chapter is, is really about learning to hold on to both grief and hope um, and seeing them not as diametrically opposed but really as processes that infuse one another um, and arguing that, that the best forms of um, that what that mournful hope might be is, is really about cultivating the best forms of relationship that are still available to us. Um so it might, you know it's going to be very far from perfect, and yet there is you know there are still better and worse possibilities here and so the work of of working through what they are and uh working towards the the better um is i think you know, something to still be very hopeful about um and i'm I guess I'm riffing off Wendell Berry a little bit in that in that discussion and uh and thinking in thinking about um a hope that's not really about success in any kind of utopian sense, but that is about you know, cultivating the best possibilities still available. And I talk about that in particular uh, in the context of not only the work of care that's going on in the lab, but also the work that people like I might do of, of telling these stories and bearing witness as part of that um, effort to be faithful uh, at this uh, to others, to, to, to do that work of mournful hope at the edge of extinction
1: hmm well maybe the last thing i'll bring up um well some of that discussion reminded me of uh, you have a chapter in flightways uh about i believe it's a crane species um but it's mm. about um, birds raised in captivity and all kind of or for for captive breeding programs in particular and all the um you know the the elaborate lengths people need to go to to really be able to provide adequate care to these birds and to offer them any chance of, of reintroduction, um, but also you know the difficulties of, of bird life in captivity. And you mentioned the question of is a snail flourishing in in the ark? Um, and you know even if maybe the snail is is unlikely to flourish in, in the in the wild, given the rosy wolf snail, there's this question that you know you raise a couple points of where snails that are reintroduced from captivity might not have all the skills of a snail raised in the wild or might have slightly different capabilities. And I think I, what I want to get at here is that there's so much we don't know about the mind of a snail, what's best for a snail, um, how, you know, you bring up, we don't know how the snails got here or got to Hawaii. We have good theories, but we don't know how, we don't know how many types of snails first arrived in Hawaii, we don't know why the snails do certain behaviors. Some some wander and just seemingly pick a direction and go with seemingly no end goal. And one of the other unknowns you brought up earlier, that the, toward the beginning of this discussion, was we have decent numbers on on what mammal and bird species are are endangered or or extinct um, or threatened, but we don't at all have decent numbers or statistics on invertebrates including snails including insects and and so on um so you know you can pick one thread from all those or or pick them all but but just this this idea that there are many unknowns and and mysteries pop up throughout your book that i noticed and kind of how how philosophically uh ethically scientifically do we navigate through a situation with so many unknowns
0: yeah, that's lovely that you picked up on that because that, that is something that, that really struck me early on in in writing the book that uh, just how much more shaky a lot of the ground I was finding myself on was than when I had been working with birds. Um, and that happens you know, again and again throughout the book, as you say, and you've given many of those great examples. Um, the The taxonomy one is one that really, really struck me that we haven't talked about really yet, um, and that is that... Yeah, the, the profound uncertainty about how many species of, of snails there are in the world, um, or are in Hawaii, um, let alone the conservation status of each. Best estimates are that sort of about eighty percent of um, of the world's invertebrates haven't even been described by science, uh, let alone you know, evaluated for their conservation status. And so, one of the the, the big Um, well it's a big theme in in um, chapter four but um, in a way informing the whole book is this notion of an unknown extinction crisis um, and thinking about what it means to be losing species that we don't even know are here and of course the, the the science of taxonomy is not the only way that we we know species are here there are other knowledge systems and other ways of categorizing the world but I think it's even within this kind of scientific paradigm of scientific practice of taxonomy um you know for every species that we have a name for even um that we can describe in some some you know often very limited way uh, roughly another four are probably disappearing that have never even been described by science i think that's Mm -hmm um really deeply disturbing um that that we i think what it says is that we we really don't have a handle on uh even as even an epistemological handle let alone a kind of practical conservation handle on uh on the extinction crisis we we are it is so far beyond the sphere of our reckoning um that that we we can't make any meaningful sense of it um and so yeah that that is another space i guess of unknowability or at least um uh, unknownness at the moment um, that i am am grappling with in the book that um that was very d- different for me as somebody who had had been working primarily on birds in the past um so yeah and, and it comes up again and again in the book and I guess it it really does just reflect a very different level of investment and interest and, and concern for snails as compared to some other parts of our world um and, and that is one important thread of the story. Um, but then I guess I'm also trying to do something different with with the mystery and unknowability, and that's to make an argument for it, um, for it as a sort of a, a precious thing to be held on to, uh, not because I want to celebrate ignorance, um, uh, but because it's, it's about a kind of hum- humility, a kind of acceptance of Ourselves as creatures in a world, and here I'm thinking with with Debbie Rose, I think this is in chapter one or two of the book, uh, thinking with Debbie Bird Rose, who is drawing on Gregory Bateson um, thinking about what it means to be you know, an inhabitant of a system to live within a system um, rather than to be outside studying it from above um, and that is to necessarily be the kind of creature who you know, for whom the world reveals itself differently. Um, and there are many, multiple different kinds of ways in which it can reveal itself. Uh, and so, holding on to that mystery is about uh, also holding on to a sense of ourselves as inhabitants of of the world, with these other creatures, in relationships with them, um, and and any sort of as Bateson argued, any healthy functioning system um, is complex and and must be have its spaces of mystery and unknowability. So I'm also advocating uh, in some sense for this while also uh, pointing out the the dangers and limitations of this lack of concern and regard for snails and other invertebrates.
1: Well, thank you for you know being part of the movement to bring attention to these parts of the world, the, the invertebrate world. Um, is there anything else you want to add on any of this?
0: No, no, I think that we've, we've covered everything. Thank you so much.
1: All right. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on the show. The book is A World in a Shell, Snail Stories for a Time of Extinction. Um, Tom Van Doren, appreciate coming on.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Thanks so much for listening. Um, If you made it this far, I hope you consider uh, signing up for my free weekly newsletter, uh, where you'll get updates about future episodes, um, as well as uh, making that small monthly donation on Patreon uh, to, you know, help keep this podcast going. The links for those are in the episode description. Um, subscribing on Patreon comes with perks such as early access to episodes, a certain tiers of membership in the book club. You can uh, submit questions for, for authors and stuff like that. So hope you'll consider that. But either way, hope you have a great day.
0: For more great iRule podcasts, visit iRulePod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot